This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we have a fantastic show planned for you tonight, so stay tuned. We have three phenomenal interviews from book fair authors who are going to be appearing live at the Miami Book Fair which is happening right now through November 24th, this Sunday. And we have some great guests coming up in just a few minutes. We are starting with George Will. He is a former Fox News uh, contributor, as well as longtime Washington Post columnist. He is the author of The Conservative Sensibility, and it's going to be a phenomenal interview, so you better stay tuned, if nothing else, just for that. Then we have Phil Mudd. He is the former deputy director of the CIA's Counterterrorism uh, Counter Center, and he is going to join us to talk about his new book, Black Site, which details what happened after 9-11 with the CIA. It's a fascinating, fascinating book, and he's going to be on Miami-Dade's campus this Sunday at 5 o'clock, in the Chapman Conference Center. You should definitely make it out to that one. And then we're going to finish the show with Oscar Caceres, and he wrote the novel Where We Come From. It's a fantastic story of familial love that dares us to question the condition of our humanity. These three phenomenal authors will all be at the Miami Book Fair, and you can find out more at www.miamibookfair.com. There are going to be panels, uh, opportunities to meet these inter authors and all of the other authors at the Miami Book Fair with the street fair happening this Saturday, November 23rd, and this Sunday, November 24th. And we're going to take a very short break. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back 
This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live with author and columnist George Will. He wrote the book, The Conservative Sensibility, and will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair for an evening with George Will this Tuesday, November 19th. That's tomorrow night at 6 o'clock at the Chapman Conference Center. And you can find out more at MiamiBookFair.com. Mr. Will, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Glad, glad to be with you. So I introduced you a little bit at the top of the show, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your career writing for the Washington Post, writing books, and and in television commentary? Well, I moved to Washington from the University of Toronto. I was a college professor intending a career in that when I got invited to come to work on the Senate staff, which I did from 70 to 70 through 72, at which point, like everyone else who goes to Washington, I decided to stay. <laughs> and... I called Bill Buckley and I said, you need a Washington editor of National Review. He'd never had one. And he said, essentially, you're right, I do, and you're it. Bill liked to sort of collect young writers. I, uh, at about that time, the Washington Post decided to start a syndicate to distribute columns. There was a craving around the country for conservative columnists. And they, they started me, and uh, the rest is history. I've been doing it ever since, about 6,000 columns under the bridge. And uh, I write 100 a year. I've been doing broadcasting as long as I've been doing a columnist, but I'm a writer who does some television, not some television guy who does writing. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's amazing to be paid to have so much fun. Isn't it? So <laughs> let's get into the book, The Conservative Sensibility, because I think that there's, let's say, a lot of confusion about what is conservative and what is not today. So... Uh, what drove you to write this book in the first place with the change in the definition of conservative over the last 10 years? Well, this is a, a, a book that I've been working on for some while. It would, it would have been written no matter who won the 2016 election. When I was on Bill Maher's show, he says, gosh, George, Donald Trump's name doesn't appear in it. And I said, neither does the name of Doris Day. And for the same reason, it's a book about ideas, and some people just don't <laughs> deal in ideas. I think it was time for some, I guess, intellectual archaeology to excavate the foundations of our country and find recur to what the founders believed and why a number of our discontents and problems today trace to our uh, departure from what the founders laid out. So why do you believe that the founders' vision is so relevant today? Because the, uh, uh, the the truths are timeless, we hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, that our nation is, as Lincoln said at Gettysburg, a nation dedicated to a proposition. It's a creedal nation. We are, our citizenship isn't defined by blood or tribalism or racial identity. It's defined by subscription to certain ideas. And the progressives' repudiation of the founders, which has been, A, remarkably candid, and be remarkably successful for the last century or so with Woodrow Wilson and all the rest, has led us to our, our current uh, uh, demoralization, really. In 1964, right before the Great Society explosion of government, 77% of the American people said they trusted the government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the time. Today, it's 17%. Now, that's a 60-point collapse in confidence in the government. And I think 
The reason for that is that the, the, we've lost sight of the proper scope and actual competence of government. Well, is it fair also to say that maybe the reason for that is that there's been a partisan war on government, that one party has pretty much said all government is bad and there's even some real absolutism woven into that ideology? There, there is a strain of that uh, on conservatism, but I think it's a minority strain. I think the conservatism that I talk about is not anti-government. We understand that government is necessary. It has very important functions. We also, however, understand that some things are beyond the competence of government, that markets are better at allocating wealth and opportunity, that when the government gets ever more deeper involved in micromanaging the allocation of wealth and opportunity in society, government becomes ever more the plaything of compact, articulate, confident, well-lawyered interests who want to turn the government in their direction in allocating wealth and opportunity. And as a result, politics permeates society and bitterness increases accordingly because the sense is that it's not objective markets that are doing this, but political power. But at what point do you believe, as a conservative, the government should step in and regulate, say, an industry whose side uh, effect is polluting the air or putting something into the water that may make it less drinkable or, you know, uh, interests that regular sure. people can't possibly really stand up to, the well-lawyered private sector? Of course. Uh, obviously, the, the actions of, of large economic entities can have what economists call neighborhood effects. And it is up to the government to police those. That's, however, not what government does much of the time. What government does much of the time is what's called rent-seeking. That is, allowing private interests to bend the government to their advantage, either by conferring an advantage on them or a disadvantage on a competitor. Uh, conservatives are committed to making markets free and work. That is, you have to have good antitrust policies. They are committed to as I say, policing the neighborhood effects of private enterprise, but generally to trusting the rationality of the market over the rationality of the political class. Some people seem to have a kind of sentimental or romantic view of government that when people go into government, they lose all self-interestedness. The fact is government becomes a constituency, and people in government try to maximize power just the way people in the private sector often try to maximize profits. Uh, so government should not be looked upon sentimentally. Well, you mentioned antitrust regulation, which is becoming a hot topic with what's happened in the social media space. But isn't that legislation that you say is necessary to the functioning of free markets really essentially part of the progressive era of our country, something that really arose during the very late 19th century, but uh, uh, grew to prominence in the early 20th century? And isn't that part of the progressive vision for government? It did, but I'm, I'm, I really don't believe that uh, Google, Facebook, etc. require at this point antitrust. Google and, and uh, uh, Facebook follow other social media sites that have risen and fallen. And I don't think it's quite, I think it's a little premature to think that Google and Facebook are forever like Mount Everest. Uh, in, in fact, market forces are uh, strong, powerful, and punishing to large entities that become cumbersome and complacent. So I'm, I'm not convinced that market forces can't discipline these. 
Well, that's, uh, let's look at what has drawn antitrust uh, action in the past. For example, Intel, the chip maker, once they acquired 80% of the market, they were considered a monopoly, right? They were, but it, it seems to me we've had th- entities before that have had large portions of the market and have met better competitors. Uh, the, it, again, no conservatives says government should not be used to make markets work better, just so long as that is the point of antitrust, which is to make markets work better. Do you remember when AT&T was destroyed the world like a colossus? Ma Bell. The government came in. Exactly. It broke it up. And aren't we glad that we now have a whole range of choices uh, and uh, cell companies uh, competing with ever more attractive and ever more affordable uh, communications plans? Well, they for a while, though, they were also regional monopolies. They went from a national monopoly to regional monopoly, and then eventually communications technology changed, but it took a long time. Exactly. Technology often does this. Remember, in 1981, when CNN first came on the air as a cable news entity, in 1981 at the dinner hour, 80% of all the television sets in use in the United States were tuned to ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now, that oligopoly. That dominance of three has been shattered beyond recovery. And aren't we glad? Now, there are problems with the kind of journalism that has arisen through the cable universe. That is, people only watching what they find congenial and are subject to confirmation bias, only comfortable with news that confirms what they already believe. So there are downsides to everything. But I think on balance, we're awfully glad to have this cornucopia of choices uh, for getting our information. So we've been talking about the free market. Which party today would you consider to be the party of the free market? Or would you say there is a party of the free market today? <laughs> I don't think there is one. Uh, the, the Democrats have, uh, I think, a, a, a much too powerful regulatory urge, the desire to uh, have top-down commands for the allocation of social resources. The conservative party, or what used to be the conservative party, was a great believer in allowing markets to work. But now the conservative party, so-called, has become a protectionist party. And government doesn't get any more big and bossy than it does when it's imposing protectionism. That is telling the American people what they can buy in what quantities and at what prices. Imposing taxes unilaterally, presidents are now empowered to impose taxes in the form of tariffs, which are taxes collected at the border and paid by Americans. Uh, so both parties, it seems to me, have have fallen far away from traditional American respect for markets. So if you had to choose one, though, and say one of them today is the party that's <laughs> the most supportive, because one of them is the most supportive and one is not as supportive. Which one would you say it is? Oh, I suppose it'd still be the Republican Party, but frankly, it's a close call. And there are several Democratic parties. The party of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren has uh, an absolutely metabolic urge to regulate business and, and Americans' transactions. The Republican Party is slightly better, but decreasingly better. Well, as, as somebody regulated by one of uh, Elizabeth Warren's ideas, I'm a professional mortgage broker. Um, you know, I, I've had to deal with being regulated by the CFPB and the web of regulations that they created. Right. In fact, I finished my compliance today. Um, so 
I mean, looking at the result of that, do you think that the result of having the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau put in place has been a bad regulation or a good yes, regulation? Yes, I do, and I think, it, and I also think it's unconstitutionally uh, constructed, and will probably be struck down by uh, first the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and then uh, by the Supreme Court if appealed to that. Uh, you cannot structure uh, an executive agency that is largely independent of accountability even to the president. Well, isn't the FCC an independent agency, for example? It is an independent agency, but it's not. its leadership can be removed for, uh, by the president for policy reasons. Not so with the uh, CFPB. Furthermore, the CFPB, as you probably know, is funded not by Congress, but by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the CFPB writes a little note to the Federal Reserve and says, "This is the these are the hundreds of millions we need," and it gets it. Well, the Federal Reserve uh, Board Chairman can't be removed by the President either. That is that you're probably right, but that's it's it's actually we've never had to test that, and uh, until Mr. Trump gets uh, has a tantrum against Jay Powell, uh, we won't test it. But uh, it, it hasn't been tested, and I hope we're not going to test it. So I, but you I, know what? What I'm what I'm doing in the conservative sensibility has it, it has a lot to do with what we're talking about markets, but it also has to do with the whole idea of how complicated it is today to understand equality of opportunity, how complicated it is now that we, we have a better appreciation of how family advantages can be transmitted down the generations. Uh, this is a real challenge for conservatives who, for years, have said. We're not for equality of outcome, we're for equality of opportunity, but it turns out that is much more complicated than uh, some of us had hitherto thought. Well, that is a big issue. Didn't our founding fathers want to limit the permanent meritocracy? They didn't want to have I don't a money think class? So. I, don't think, I don't think they understood uh, how permanent uh, 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 advantages could be in a society how important education could be now that we're increasingly a cognitive stratified society in which the rewards go to people who have what we call human capital, the results of education. 200 years ago, the great source of wealth in our society was land. We had so much of it, we were practically giving it away. That's right. 100 years ago, the great source of wealth was heavy fixed capital. Think of Andrew Carnegie Steel Mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, it's education, mind, information. And uh, it is very difficult for even universal free public education, even when done well, which it often isn't, to equalize the ability of people to add value to, to, to society. It, it certainly is. And we have a few more minutes left. So I wanted to ask you a very interesting question. I don't think it's covered in the book, but... You know, there's a big push to raise the minimum wage, and I know it's national to raise it to $15 an hour. We talk about equality of opportunity. Do you think that that's an appropriate measure for trying to create equality of opportunity by making sure that people around the country are paid a living wage? Or do you think that it's overreach because it's going it's to force it down for people's throats in areas that are smaller? For example, I think it's a bad idea. First of all, the cost of living in Mississippi and the cost of living in San Francisco are kind of radically different. Second, I don't think government is good at setting prices. And what a minimum wage does is sets prices basically on entry level labor. Third, what you're going to do is uh, price 
entry level, often young people, often young minority people, out of entry level jobs. You're going to you see this now as more and more. For example, McDonald's, Wendy's, and other fast food restaurants are increasingly going to automated uh, ordering with tablets and the rest because it's so much cheaper than uh, than uh, paying a fifteen dollar minimum wage. We talk about a living wage. Very few people earning the minimum wage in the United States are supporting a family. They are often students. They are often part-time employees. And this is a job that gets them on the ladder of upward mobility in the United States. So it's it's not quite reasonable to say $15 an hour is necessary for someone to support a family on. Very few people are doing this who are earning a minimum wage. So what do we need to do to ensure the equality of opportunity in this country? The best thing we can do is to radically improve education grades K through 12. Uh, We're still educating the way we did in the 19th century for a 21st century world. We have to get people more familiar with broadband, more familiar with information technologies. We have to understand that rigor matters. Uh, We have to make people give them numeracy, give them basic civic literacy. We have uh, really asked our schools and primary and secondary education to do things that used to be done by families. One of the themes in my, my book is that the most important problem confronting our country domestically is family disintegration. When you have uh, 40% of all American first births, regardless of race, color, creed, are to unmarried women. When a majority, listen to this stat, when a majority of mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children. Abundant research demonstrates the handicaps, particularly for adolescent males, when they don't have fathers in the home. Uh, This is a problem we don't know what caused it, and therefore we have a hard time figuring out how to cure it. But there's no point in talking about curing inequality by fiddling with the tax code when family disintegration is at the heart of it. Well, Mr. Will, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to join us on the radio program tonight. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more on social media, on Twitter, uh, and your website, and where they can find the book, The Conservative Sensibility? Well, the book, our our universal bookseller, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, will will be glad to send you a copy, but uh, bookstores everywhere should have it. And, And I certainly look forward to talking to the folks in Miami tomorrow night. And that's right. You can find Mr. Will tomorrow night, Tuesday, November 19th at 6 p.m. at the Chapman Conference Center in Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami. It's Building 3, Room 2 at 6 o'clock. George, thank you so much for joining me on the program. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we're back with Philip Mudd. He is the former deputy director of the CIA Counterterrorist Center and FBI National Security Branch. And he's joining us because he will be at the Miami Book Fair, which is happening November 17th through the 24th, right now, in fact, in Miami-Dade's downtown Wolfson campus. He will be live at the Miami Book Fair this Sunday, November 24th at 5 p.m. at the Chapman Conference Center, Building 3, Second Floor. You can find out more about it at MiamiBookFair.com. Mr. Mudd, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thanks for having me today. It is my pleasure. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what went into doing the job of being the deputy director of the CIA's Counterterrorist Center? Boy, uh, I, I took over as deputy director in 2003. At that point, if you think of the variety of stuff you have on your plate, everything from how to assess how the U.S. is doing against al-Qaeda for the president of the United States is sitting in a room saying, um, what kind of operation are we going to conduct to try to capture uh, a terrorist in a place like Afghanistan. Uh, you sit on meetings to talk about how you do congressional hearings, especially congressional hearings when the members of Congress are not very happy. We did media leaks, and then you get into the mundane uh, personnel meetings, budget meetings. So everything from conducting operations against al-Qaeda to talking to the White House to whether somebody who's uh, been around for 10 years, ought to be promoted everything back in 2003, 2005. That's when I was deputy director. Well, the name of the book is Black Site, and it's about the CIA in the post-9-11 world. So can you explain to our listeners what is a black site? Well, in, in the spring of 2002, a long time ago, but man, to me it seems like yesterday, the CIA picked up its first high-level al-Qaeda prisoner, a guy named Abu Zubaydah. And they came to the conclusion, these are colleagues that I interviewed for the book, that he wouldn't talk anymore. He talked initially, but that he had shut down. In fact, he said he was going to shut down, not speak anymore. So they said, what do we do? If we send him to a U.S. prison with a U.S. lawyer, he's going to clam up. So the CIA decided very quickly in mid-2002 that they were not only going to build their own secret detention facilities overseas in places like Asia that we call black sites, but they are also going to use would have now become known as enhanced interrogation techniques, things like sleep deprivation and waterboarding. It seems, boy, it's a million years ago, but it feels like yesterday to me. That's what black sites were, secret detention facilities. And, and how long were these secret detention facilities being used? Pretty short. I mean, it, it, you would have thought in, in mid-2002 that national unity on the issue of how aggressive to be on terrorism would last forever. But, but within a year, CIA officers were saying, we can't keep some of these initial prisoners forever. Within a few years, there was a lot of discussion at the White House with, with President Bush and others about what to do with these prisoners. And then by the time President Bush left and President Obama came in, President Obama said, not only are these prisons shut down, and, and Bush had been involved in shutting them down, but we will never do this again. So it was a fairly short period of American kind of intelligence history. But it, it was very significant because... It represented American intelligence doing something that it normally didn't do, right? It was, and I, and I think, you know, to, to take a, a step further, I, I mean, I'm not stupid. It's a period of American intelligence history that a lot of Americans think was, was inappropriate. So I think in addition to the uniqueness, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to capture what happened to help further generations understand what, what happened at the agency. But there are a lot of questions then, and there, there are questions today, although they've died down a 
about whether it's appropriate for America to keep prisoners in secret facilities and to use interrogation techniques that you would not be able to use in America. So I, I thought I should write a book to let Americans know what happened. So whether you like it or not, and it's not a defense, but whether you like it or not, you have at least a sense of what the CIA was thinking when they decided to go down this path. Well, is it true that going down that path and enhanced interrogation, uh, you know, using these techniques actually harmed the ability of the government to put these men onto trial later on down the road? Boy, you'd have to ask a lawyer that. I don't know. Uh, the, the argument, obviously, by people, by, by the defense attorneys, for people who went through the CIA facilities is anything this prisoner admitted after he was in CIA custody, and everybody we had in custody were, were males, after he was in CIA custody, can't be admitted into a court because it's coerced. So there's been legal arguments for years and years now that I think will go down till the end of time about whether any of these prisoners can ever be tried. I think the question in 2002 was, if we don't do this and one of these prisoners had, has information that could prevent a second wave, a 9-11 type wave in America, then how do we wake up and say, we shouldn't have done that. I know that's a debatable point, but again, I wanted to capture what people thought. And that's what they thought, you know, whatever it is, 17 years ago. Well, no, it's important to build the historical record so that people understand firsthand what was going on, right? I mean, that that's the point of writing I, I, about this. I think so. I mean, some people, I interviewed all my, maybe three dozen plus of my colleagues. Uh, it's not a historical work. It's a, it's a perspective on what the CIA felt like. So historians might say documents offer a different picture. Uh, and some members of Congress, for example, would dispute the perspective that I wrote. But everybody's got a sliver to write in history that's as complicated. And I figured if, if none of my colleagues is ever going to speak to a journalist, if they're never going to write a book, maybe they'll, they'll talk to me because I know almost everybody I interviewed I knew. They'll talk to me and I'll, I'll offer their perspective and it can become part of a a mosaic when a real historian looks at this, you know, 30 years down the road when documents are declassified. I thought it was a slice of history. Well, you mentioned speaking with Congress uh, in the start of our segment here. What was the impact of congressional oversight on these black sites? That's a great question. Um, because the Congress, has, when they issued their judgments, they wrote a report on this a few years ago that was very negative about the CIA, and, and uh, including me. Uh, there was also a Republican minority report that took a different view. But early on, I, I think I did some of the briefings for Congress on the Black Site program, and I was probably talking to them in maybe 2003, I'm guessing. But early on, you got a sense that Congress reflected America, which is don't ever let this happen again. Make sure you're aggressive. If we give you authorities to be aggressive, make sure to use them. Don't be cautious. And then when I spoke to them, and I think it was the same for my colleagues, their view was either not saying much or saying this looks fine. I, we actually expected you guys would be tougher. So that changed, obviously, as the Iraq war divided America and, and as America sort of started to move away from 9-11. But early on, people, in a, I think in America, but at least in Congress, were sort of like, go get them and make sure you, you don't ever let this happen again. Do whatever it takes. And so we said, okay. Well, do you believe personally that these black sites helped national security? Do you believe that they didn't have a significant impact on preventing another attack? Or do you believe that, uh, you know, something else, that maybe there's some good and bad in, in what was done? Uh, I think there are a couple basic questions that people get confused that we need to keep separated. Uh, you 
know, if you look at all the intelligence we collect, the detainees at black sites, intercepted communications like phone calls and emails from terrorists, cooperation from friendly security services in Southeast Asia and South Asia and the Middle East, um, human sources that the CIA had, that is, informants within the Al-Qaeda organization. There weren't many in 2001, but that, that changed over time. The informant base the CIA had improved. I don't know which of those was most critical. I don't think that the black site stuff was the most critical. I thought it was pretty important then, so I don't know. It's sort of like playing a game of Jenga, bringing, picking one of those blocks out of a pile and figure out which one actually you know, was the most important. I, I thought it was important. I, I think there's a separate question, though, and that is, is this what America wants? Um, That's a very big question. I have differing opinions on that, and, and so I, I think today people have said we're not sure we want that, but in 2002, there's a different perspective. I do think some of the information was quite valuable, though. Well, one of the points that your book makes is the transformation of about uh, like about the CIA is that there was a transformation from intelligence gathering to operations. So, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about the different sections of the CIA? The you know, and, and why that's a big change for the CIA to go from mostly intelligence gathering to operations? It's really hard to, to overestimate that change. I know it's hard for a listener to understand, but think of it this way. The, the, the intel world has a couple of basic components. People are out in the field like the, the, Jack, the, the Jack Bauer people who collect information from, you know, Al-Qaeda informants. And then boring people like me back at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, who process it. You look at it and say, well, we take all this information from around the world and you come up with an assessment of how, how are we doing? Are we making progress or are we slipping? That's the way the intelligence business works. Think of before 9-11, very slow moving, the Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union, assessing missiles, assessing nukes overseas. Slow moving stuff, the Americans could react to it slowly. The likelihood that something would happen overnight was pretty darn low. Overnight, you have a target that is a an al-Qaeda target where every hour counts. Tactical information is in some ways more important than strategic information. You're not looking for the big picture of what the Kremlin is doing. You're looking for what's, what's, where some terrorist is 10,000 miles away. I want to know where he is tomorrow so we can conduct a raid operation to have him arrested. Tactical, fast, global, uh, lethal in the United States where some of the intelligence before 9-11 might have helped the president understand Russia, but it wasn't going to be lethal overnight. Boy, it's just everything changed. Speed, magnitude, impact on the United States, impact on an American family. It was really incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was never a, uh, there was a nuclear threat for decades that the CIA was managing, but there was never a nuclear attack, whereas this was tangible. That's right. And I, I think furthermore, uh, members of Congress and, and people in this country, everyday citizens, right, all of a sudden, front and center, what's the CIA doing? How are they doing? How can we ensure that we understand they're spending our taxpayer dollars properly? I think the role of the CIA became much more prominent and much more public after 9-11, which is one reason why people like me are in the public eye now. I, I think it's appropriate for Americans to ask, this is not about Russians. This is about whether there's terrorists in Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Jacksonville or New York or Los Angeles, and we want to know, and you got to talk. Well, another issue that's part of the book and it's part of your biography is that you were part of the FBI National Security Branch. So can you explain to our listeners how the FBI and the CIA actually have joint responsibility over terrorism issues? They do, but the, boy, the way they operate, it was really fascinating. It's fundamentally different. The CIA is operating overseas where the primary responsibility, sometimes working with foreign partners, is collecting information. 
stealing a terrorist laptop, for example. The FBI operates domestically where the primary responsibility first is to ensure you protect people's civil liberties and civil rights. So if you want to understand what Al-Qaeda is doing in Los Angeles, you can't just rip off people's laptops. You have to say, what's the appropriate sort of FBI operational activity in Los Angeles? What reason do we have to look at John Doe's laptop? Can we go to a judge? Can we get the judge's decision about whether that's appropriate? The two shared responsibilities, for example, if a terrorist is traveling from overseas to the United States, there's a handoff. But uh, the way they operate in their mission set is really different. Well, don't they have to use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to find out what's going on? Isn't that part of... Yes, the foreign... That's that's right. And I was involved in that in government. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court authorizes whether you can look, at, in particular, at somebody's email. But... Um, how you run informants, how you steal people's stuff overseas if they're an al-Qaeda operator in a place like Afghanistan is really different. Aside from that technical issue of how you intercept somebody's laptop if they're an American citizen and how you get a judge involved. How you operate in a place like Afghanistan where you know a foreign member of al-Qaeda does not have that many rights compared to an American citizen who may be recruited by al-Qaeda in Miami very different operational environments. You're right, applying to intercept somebody's emails is similar, but a lot of the other stuff is different. And and that that accounts for part of it, but isn't there also a cultural difference between the CIA and the FBI? I think people don't realize that there's some cultural differences there. When I went over there, we sort of talked about it, but but when I went over there, both have strengths and vulnerabilities. The the CIA is very agile. They'll move fast, ask questions later. Um, Not very hierarchical. In other words, you look at the CIA director and you basically say, no, we're not doing that. You you would not do that to the FBI director, typically. But not that rules-oriented. The FBI, because they have to go to a court, because they're operating in places, obviously, where U.S. citizens live, much more careful less agile for a good reason. You don't want people just sort of making new playbooks when they're operating against American citizens in places like Los Angeles and Miami. But methodical is the day. I thought they were a lot more methodical than what I witnessed at the CIA. And I thought that was a great strength. Very methodical. Um, both committed organizations. I thought there was talent in both, but the way they think is really different. So, Phil, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show before you hop on to CNN. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about your book, Black Site, The CIA in the Post-9-11 World, and where they can sure. reach out and keep and this conversation going? My favorite bookstore, which is Books and Books. I go to that place all the time. But um, you can obviously pick my book up on, on uh, Amazon. You can go to any other bookstore. And you can come to the book fair, which is, as you mentioned, I, I think it's maybe the best book fair in America. It's yeah, the biggest it's like, one. I, and I'm a Miami homeboy. I grew up there. I went to Epiphany School in South Miami and LaSalle High School down by Mercy Hospital in Miami. I am like, I'm so excited to be there. It's, for people like me, this is a real honor to come and sign books at, a, at an event like this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's great to have you down here. And for our listeners, you can go out and meet Phil Mudd this Sunday, November 24th at 5 p.m. It's at Miami Dade's downtown Wolfson campus, the Chapman Conference Center, room uh, the second floor, room 3210, building three. And is there, uh, by the way, is there a website or social media you'd like to give out? I don't do social media, but I, I do have, if you get on com and send me a note, as long as it's polite, most of what I get is rude. <laughs> you'd be shocked. But as long as it's polite, usually I answer them, but not, not if it's rude mail. No, that gets deleted. But yeah, polite mail, I'll probably read it. 
That's awesome. Phil, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thanks for having me. Take care. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.OnlyMiamiRadio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at OnlyMiamiRadio.com. And we are back with book fair author Oscar Caceres. He wrote the novel Where We Come From and will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair this Sunday, November 24th at 3.30 p.m. in Miami-Dade College uh, Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami. He'll be in Building 8, the second floor room, 8201. And you can find out more about that at MiamiBookFair.com. Oscar, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Hey, it's great to be here. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what inspired you to write Where We Come From, which is your third novel? Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about the book, and then I'll and then I'll uh, sure. back up a little bit and tell you exactly where it started. Uh, the the novel has to uh, do with a uh, retired school teacher who lives in uh, Brownsville, Texas, and uh, so she's right on the border, and uh, she's retired because she her her mother, uh, elderly mother, uh, became ill, and she had to. Um, quit work and go home to take care of her in Brownsville and uh, in Brownsville. Yeah. And, um, what this means is that she's pretty much, uh, taking care of her 24 seven and can't really leave the house. And the only person that she really has any contact with is her maid who comes across the bridge once a week from, uh, Matamoros, Mexico, um, and, uh, cleans the house. And one day the maid asks her for a favor and the favor is, uh, uh, involves allowing the maid's daughter, grown daughter and granddaughter to come spend the night at the house. And the reason they want to come spend the night at the house is that somebody's going to come pick them up, uh, that night and then smuggle them past the last border patrol checkpoint and take them north and and that favor and, obviously becomes central to the plot of your novel it becomes it becomes the the the, the sort of uh the, the trigger um uh the the retired school teacher her name's nina is really conflicted with this um this idea of this favor i mean on on the one hand all she has to do is, is look the other way she doesn't have to do anything other than and just say okay um, on the other hand, she knows that it's it's illegal 
Um, and, uh, but again, this is, this woman is essentially her lifeline. She's, this is the only person that she sees outside of the house. And so she agrees to do it, uh, thinking that she'll do this, this one little favor and then, uh, that'll be it. She'll never do anything like this again. Uh, what she isn't counting on is when the, uh, the smugglers come to the house and, uh, see the little rental property in the back where the, where the maid's daughter is staying and granddaughter. Uh, that they kind of like the place and they think they'll want to use it again. And, uh, and suddenly it isn't her choice whether they're going to come back or not. They just are. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and so she becomes uh, involved in this trafficking ring uh, out, of, out of this one uh, small favor that she did for this woman. So what did inspire you to write this particular novel today, considering all of the national political issues that are going on over immigration to the United States? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you, if just at, at first glance and from that description, you would think that I was reading the uh, paper and thought, you know, Hey, why not write a, a, a novel about uh, immigration and, and trafficking and stuff. Uh, but it actually started somewhere uh, very different. Um, Part of what happens in the story is uh, after she gets herself, uh, you know, mixed up with these people. Nina, at the same Nina time, gets mixed up with these yeah, people. Nina, uh, she has her godson coming to spend part of the summer with her, and her godson's coming down from Houston, and he's coming from a fairly uh, affluent neighborhood uh, in in Houston, and uh, his whole family is from the border region. And uh, this is the, 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 the ancestral homeland for him. And yet he knows nothing about this part of the country. How old is the boy? The boy, Orly, is uh, 10 years old. Gotcha. Uh, actually, no, he's 12. He's 12. And um, he's, he's coming to spend the time there. Um, and, and now Nina has this, this uh, conflict where she's got this terrible secret that she's trying to keep from him. And, um, you know, one, because, you know, obviously she doesn't want to get caught by the authorities, but two, she doesn't want him to know that she's doing this illegal thing and doesn't know how to explain it to him. Well, it, and, and l- let's be clear. It's, is it illegal what she's doing? Is it criminally illegal? Is it civilly illegal? What kind of illegal? It is, it is criminally illegal to, to, to house uh, and, and a bed. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it you know. And she, it, it, it is essentially becoming uh, a, a safe house, right? Um, yeah. It may not have been as much when it was uh, just the maid's daughter and granddaughter. Um, it, maybe she could have, uh, you know, explained her way out of that. Uh, but when she has dozens of undocumented immigrants hiding on her property, then it becomes a, it does become a criminal activity. No, it's a much bigger issue absolutely absolutely and uh and it's a it's a you know you get a a peek into uh what that situation is is actually like so um, what happens when this 12 12 year old boy arrives and finds this secret well it takes him a while it takes him a while to, to to figure out that something isn't isn't right um and you know, when when he finds this out, he it it you know, first of all, he's completely out of his element. Um, 
it's there's a there's a bit of a culture shock. He knows some of the language. Uh, you know, there's a there's there's a fair amount of Spanish bro- spoken uh, in Brownsville. The book's in English, but there's there's a bits and pieces of Spanish. He knows enough of the language to kind of understand what's happening, uh, but not quite enough to 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 have his bearings. And so uh, he he goes through his own uh, you know sort of trauma just as she does when the when the traffickers show up um initially the story had started off uh with with the godson and i was curious not so much in the uh issue of uh, immigration as we know it as we see it in the news but what happens after uh, a family immigrates and begins to assimilate into the culture, adopts the language, puts their kids through school, goes through the whole thing, you know, lives out that that American dream. And then eventually those kids begin to move away, right, right? as as this boy's father had moved away. Um, do do those people. How do they make it back to where they came from? was was the question that I was that I was most curious of. So I knew this boy was going to come back to the border where his father was from. And I knew that when he arrived there, he was going to find something, discover something that was going to just rock his world. I didn't know what that was. Uh, but once I got the, the, the wheels in motion and I realized that uh, Nina was alone uh, taking care of her mother and that this uh, situation was was just um, um, sort of ripe for, for an encounter like this. I, I, I sort of understood that this was, this was what was going to happen. Well, doesn't, uh, viewing the, the situation and the scene through the eyes of a 12 year old boy, isn't that like a way of, uh, imparting innocence to the audience? Like, Hey, take a fresh look at this as opposed to. Yeah, no, it is. You're, you, I think you, 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 you tapped on it right there in, in the sense that, uh, Part of what uh, I wanted to do, um, and and Nina's Nina, you know, begins this fairly apolitical uh, herself. I mean, she over time begins to see it differently. But at, at the beginning, it is strictly a favor, and she is not, uh, you know, in, in you know against immigration or for immigration. She's she's just very neutral about the whole thing. Um, but yes, yeah, seeing it through the through the kids' eyes, um, and and uh, you know, particularly her having to articulate what it is she's doing, why she's doing it, trying to justify it, trying to present it to him in a way that he can process it. Yes, becomes this way of of looking at it with with a, you know you know sort of a, a blank slate. Um, and, and part of what I wanted to do. Um, you know, if, if there was a, uh, an agenda to this all, uh, and it's hard to sort of divorce yourself from it when you, when you're talking about something that's so, so polarizing. Right. Uh, but part of what I wanted to do was strip the politics from this as much as possible and, um, to, to not make it a red or blue issue left or right, but simply make it, uh, uh, you know, a humanitarian issue. Um, and, and that's, that's where it ends up, uh, landing, I think. Well, it it very much is a humanitarian issue, but politically speaking, all politics are local. So 
it's certainly an issue for people in Brownsville, people in Miami, people everywhere that live in a border community. I mean, it's something that absolutely that touches everybody that lives in a border that's you know heavily transited. And Texas has a big one, and so does Florida, and so does a lot of the United States. So I think it's it's a fascinating look at at how uh, you know undocumented immigration impacts people, like down on the ground with this story. Um, so we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, is there something about the book that we haven't told the audience yet that you'd like to tell them about? Well, I think that you know some of the um, the, the research that went into it. Uh, was, was is is interesting to know in the sense that, you know, I had um, talked to, you know, several uh, people who had uh, immigrated to the country by by these means, and uh, and gotten bits and pieces of information, but it was it was difficult to um, get the kind of information or details that I needed that that I felt were. Um, uh, you know, going to be clarifying in the sense of how this actually happens, the, the sort of the logistics and, and, and the way that the, 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 you know, the traffickers work. Sounds and like I a difficult to meet, topic to get into because you're talking about, you know, tell me more about this maybe not so lawful activity that you're involved in. Well, but but the other part of it is that, that most people who, who go through that want to simply get through it. Right. And, and they don't want to be looking around. They don't want to be noticed because to be noticed is to, is to be a target. Sure. Right. And so they keep their heads down. And uh, but I happened to meet a, a former INS agent who, uh, through the 80s and I think early 90s, was a, uh, a secret agent, essentially. Uh, and what his job was to do was to cross over from El Paso into Ciudad Juarez and pose as an immigrant, uh, contact a coyote, and get himself smuggled into the U.S. and transported all the way to Chicago. Wow. Right? And, uh, and he's doing this without a wire, without cell phone, without anything. Right? And, uh, but by virtue of what his, his job and the fact that he's trying to bring down this operation, he's got to document everything, right? He has to know how the money is, is circulating, how long they're keeping them in certain stash houses, how they're moving them, who gets paid, um, just the, all, the, all the inner workings of that uh, organization. And, uh, and so he became uh, crucial to this, to this story. Uh, because otherwise, I'd be telling it from the headlines and, and bits and pieces that I learned from people, but not from uh, this is actually how it works. This is how they get paid. This is how they charge. Uh, and and this is and these are some of the stories that have happened along the way. Well, Oscar, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. And um, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can meet Oscar in person live at the Miami Book Fair this Sunday. Uh, at 2.30 p.m., it's room, uh, it's in building eight, second floor, I think it's room 8210. And Oscar, do you have a, a website and any social media that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, uh, my uh, my website is uh, just my name, oscargossetis.com, O-S-C-A-R-C-A-S-A-R-E-S.com. That's O-S-C-A-R-C-A-S-A-R-E-S. 
S-A-R-E-S dot com. And any social media to share? No, no, I wouldn't be writing books if I was on social media. Well, I guess you just got to buy the book then if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Oscar, again, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's really been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Grant. And that's all the time we have for tonight's Only in Miami show. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'd like to thank George Will for taking some time out of his busy schedule to join us, as well as Phil Mudd and, of course, Oscar Caseras. And you can find them all at the Miami Book Fair this upcoming weekend. It's running all week through Sunday. Find out more at MiamiBookFair.com. That's www.MiamiBookFair.com. We're going to get a bunch of great interviews there this weekend for you to listen to for the rest of the year. And we'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.